Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Welcome to the New Year's Day edition of this podcast, January 1st, 2023. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope 2022 treated you pretty good and that 2023 is much better. So today we're going to talk about two things. First, we're going to spend just a few minutes. I'm going to explain a little bit about my thoughts going forward for 2023, what I want to try to accomplish, some things that we're going to do in the year ahead. And then we're going to talk a little bit about El Mencho. And we, when we get there, I'll explain why it is I decided to go back and talk about El Mencho again, even though we've already talked about him a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago. But let's talk about 2023. As most of you know, I started this podcast uh, to talk about the Camarena case and my involvement in the Camarena case, and in no small part to evaluate the claims that were made in the last NARC and by Agent Boreas and Jorge Godoy and Rene Lopez Romero. And that was a central focus of the podcast for the first, you know, many weeks. And we're never, ever going to get far away from that, okay? Um, There's always a core element to that in this podcast and in my work. And frankly, we are continuing to look at a number of things related to the Camarena case. And... You know, even though it's 37, almost 38 years later, there's still a lot of nuance, a lot of of gaps, if you will, in the information and plenty of room in a number of important, significant areas for further analysis, further discussion. And we're going to continue to do that behind the scenes and then bring it to you in the podcast. And in case anybody's wondering, we're never, ever going to stop evaluating the evidence, anything new we discover, any new, you know, or continued analysis and thought and consideration. And we're always going to evaluate that that uh, against the allegations, the largely unsupported, in my opinion, allegations in the last narc and the statements by Godoy and Lopez. Okay. So if you joined the podcast, if you started listening because you were interested in the camera in any case, don't worry. We're not going to give up on that, but we're also going to broaden out a little bit. And, you know, in, in today's world, people are concerned about Mexican cartels are concerned about drug trafficking And yet there's a lot of mystery and unknown. And so we're going to try to pull back the veil a little bit and look at the cartels in Mexico, their activities in the United States, their leadership, their relationship with the government, all of those sorts of things. And I think that both groups, you know, again, if you join just to listen about Camarena or you join just to listen about Cartels, I I think there's something in there for everyone, and uh, I look forward to going forward and and moving 
advancing the thought process and the intellectual process that we started. Always, always going back to something that we started with too, which is evidence, right? We're going to talk about evidence. Remember last week, um, you know, we were looking at some uh, that congressional report and everything was, or so many things were, well, this person said, or that person said, and sometimes that's the best you can do, but we're always going to focus on the evidence and take, let the analysis proceed and let the evidence take us wherever it goes. All right. Now let's talk about El Mencho. So a few weeks ago, we talked about El Mencho and El Mayo and we did kind of a brief history of the cartels. And I think that was very interesting, but it was brief. And then, as you know, or most of you probably know, El Mencho's brother, who went by the alias of Tony Montana, was arrested in a raid on his or on a house uh, on December 20th of last year. And that got me thinking again about El Mencho and his ability to, you know, kind of stay in power, what the reasons for that are. And I started to do a little bit of, of research in the last few days of, you know, who is he, where'd he come from, what's, you know, what's his background, and uh, was really intrigued by the fact that there is so little really known. And we'll talk about that a little bit. One of the things, and I'll probably mention this again, one of the things I found fascinating with um, Tony Montana is he was arrested at a house, again, about 26 kilometers outside of Guadalajara. Think about that. I mean, I, I always think of these guys as, as you know, where Cara was. And, and um, you know, there was a, a video that came out. There was a, a reporter in Mexico that was able to go to the compound where Caro Quintero was hiding out before he was picked up. And to say that it's modest would be an understatement. That's kind of what I think of. I don't think of, you know, El Mencho's brother, a wanted person, somebody deeply involved in the cartel, being essentially just outside Guadalajara. Uh, so I found that very interesting. But I want to talk about El Mencho for a while. And if, if you remember, we when we talked early, very early on, we talked a little bit about Caro and uh, Felix Gallardo and Fonseca, and, and we found out that their information for a lot of things in Mexico in the past is limited at best. I mean, we know more about 13th century England than we do the 1960s and 70s in Mexico in some respects. And it's really amazing. But here's what's really interesting too. Let's talk about just the basic facts. So can we all acknowledge that El Mencho, if he's not the, the biggest drug dealer in the world and the most wanted, he's one of the two or three, right? I mean, he's at the higher echelon. So you would think we would know something about him. Well, here's what we know. We know he was born on July 17, 1966. No, we know he was born on July 17. He probably was born in 1966. 
But there are some reports that say 1964. And then apparently there's a police report from San Francisco that says it's 1965. Okay, not a big deal. But uh, then you have where he grew up. Uh, (laughs) I've counted today no less than four different recitals of where his family was from. Most people put it as um, someplace in Michoacan. Um, he probably, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, but in, in general, that's where it was. But the exact city is a little bit of a mystery. Here's something else that's interesting. How tall is he? Now, I think we can, I think the evidence is pretty clear that he's five foot eight and is generally regard, listed at about 165 pounds. At least at some point he was. But having said that, you can find on the internet dozens of places that will list him as being five foot zero. All right. So what, Jack? What does that mean? Nothing except going back to my point, the biggest drug dealer in the world or one of them. We know so little about him. Um, so his family was very poor, again, farmers in Michoacan, uh, farmed avocados. Um, he, um, I I guess cockfighting, the rooster fighting is uh, a big deal in Michoacan, or at least it was. And one of his nicknames was El Señor de los Gallos. Um, so... He, um, in about 1985-1986, he moved to San Francisco, or to the San Francisco Bay Area. And for about the next five or six years, we have a pretty good, maybe even ten years, we have a pretty good idea of his activities because he got arrested a couple of times. So it's highly likely that he was involved in some methamphetamine production in uh, the San Francisco area. He was arrested in 1986. There's um, some really good mug shots of a young El Mencho with, um, you know, kind of looks like an Afro. Uh, He was deported in 1989, but uh, came back to San Francisco. He was um, arrested again, and there's a long story. I don't want to go into it at this point. There's a long story about how he got arrested. Basically, um, he and his brother were overheard talking about a heroin deal. Um, There are stories that I think are very hard to verify that um, El Mencho agreed to plead guilty to charges to avoid his brother getting into more trouble. We may talk about that a little bit later, but it it, it may be more apocryphal than, than true or urban legend. But the idea is he did get sentenced to prison. He was sent to the big spring correctional center in Texas, where a lot of immigrants were. And there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that many of the uh, the Mexican citizens who were incarcerated in Big Spring 
left with more of a criminal mindset and a, a criminal skill set than they had when they walked in. In any event, uh, El Mencho was sentenced to the Correctional Center. He stayed there for about three years, and then he was deported back to Mexico at age 30. <laughs> now, what's really interesting, so you you um, you get deported once because you'd been arrested for drugs. You get deported a second time based on, again, another set of drug allegations. And so what do you do? You go back to Mexico and you join the police forces. So he um, spent some time working for the police at uh, Cabo Corrientes and Tomatlan. Tomatlan, sorry, I put in an extra A. Um, But then sometime after that, he joined what was referred to as the Millennial Cartel. And in particular, he worked for uh, El Maradona, who was Armando Valencia Cornelio. Um, And then he married Rosalina Gonzalez Valencia, who was sister. So became very entrenched with the Millennial Cartel with the Valencio family. About 2003, after some attacks by Los Zetas and some others, uh, the Valencia family basically went into what you could call exile in Guadalajara. This, again, this was about 2003. During that time, the, the remnants of this millennial cartel uh, formed an alliance with a faction of the Sinaloa cartel. The the faction was headed by a guy by the name of Ignacio Coronel, who also went by the name Nacho, who was an ally of El Chapo. Um, And El Mencho ran activities in Colima, Jalisco, Apparently, he was um, really good at what he did, very popular, um, very methodical, business-like, etc. 2009-2010, as a result of a couple of arrests and uh, the death of one of the Valencia family members, the Millennial Cartel essentially disintegrated and uh, fractured, and you ended up with two groups. So a core group wanted uh, a person by the name of Elpidio Mojaro Ramirez, El Pilo as its leader, and that group became known as La Resistance or The Resistance, and others wanted El Mencho, um, and that group was called the, the Zeta Killers. We talked about this a little bit the last time we talked about um, El Mencho. What was interesting is El Mencho really used this, I got to say, ingenious propaganda method to um, to win kind of popular support, to um, announce the pre- you know the presence of the Zeta killers and. Part of what he did is he came out and said, you know, these guys, the resistance, the Zetas, some others are horrible people because they're exploiting 
citizens and business people and kidnapping them and doing extortion, and that's wrong, and we're going to stop that, and we won't do that, etc. Um, and it seemed to have really had a significant effect. And shortly after that, um, the the Zeta killers kind of you know um, were able to overwhelm the resistance and and took over again these remnants of of the cartel and that's when they changed their name to the cartel de Jalisco Nueva Generacion CJNG and um, started to um, to operate kind of on its own with El Mencho undisputedly at the head and you know what's there are some internal Mexican you know, government reports um, that say that the ability of CJNG and El Mencho to expand their operations territorially and operationally is unprecedented in Mexican history. And early on, there were some um, significant rivals. Um, you had the Knights Templar, you had Los Zetas, and um, the uh, CJNG was really able to fight those off. And, and um, one of the things that distinguished El Mencho and his group from others uh, is their, their sheer ruthlessness. And, you know, perhaps not to the degree of the Zetas, um, but there clearly was a, an element of the CJNG that was brutal, that took um, pleasure in being brutal, that made attacks against government officials. There's a story of uh, a, an ice chest being delivered to an attorney general with a, uh, a pig's head in it. So lots of things. I mean, they they were they were notable. They were out there, and they grew. They grew dramatically. What's interesting is even as they grew, um, El Mencho's um, position was never wavered. But things kept happening. So he got arrested in 2015, um, but was released. His wife. Now, there's a, a story that they really weren't, they were business partners at this point, but they were kind of separated maritally. But nevertheless, she was arrested in 2018, and and she was supposed to be like, you know, the financial guru of, of um, the cartel. And so people said, oh, this is going to be devastating. Uh, then his daughter, Jessica, was arrested in February 2020 in Washington, D.C., and then, as they say, uh, his brother was arrested in December. Despite this, he stays in power. And you can read about um, various times in 2015 and stuff where there were man huts and, he, and his retaliations and things. And, and that kind of made his, him more famous and more known. Um, you'll see some reports. I just want to mention this. There's some reports that say he 
kind of filled a vacuum when El Chapo was arrested and eventually deported. I'm not really sure I um, buy that. I don't think the timing quite fits. I think that he was well on his way, irrespective of whatever um, El Chapo was doing. So one of the things that's interesting about um, El Mencho is he apparently has kidney disease. And there are stories that he's built hospitals, or at least one, maybe more, in order to treat him. Um, which again, kind of seems like, all right, if you know there that there's the hospital that has dialysis and he's the one who built it and it's for him, wouldn't it be easy to find him? Uh, you know, that seems logical to me, but apparently, uh, it's, it's not in February of 2022, there were reports of his death that, that he died of, of his kidney disease. Those have been largely um, shut down, though I don't think it's because there have been, you know, great sightings of him or anything. And when we talk about why hasn't he been caught yet, there are a couple of considerations that I think are interesting. I want to read um, something from a Rolling Stones report in 2019. But the Rolling Stones article says, Mencho leveraged his power using the twin tools of corruption and intimidation. Captured CJNG members have testified about how he hates disobedience and likes to make his victims beg forgiveness before killing them. This is a guy who will execute your whole family based on not much more than a rumor, a source says. He just has zero regard for human life. According to one source who met Mencho, he's a shrewd businessman who doesn't drink, doesn't have lovers like other cartel leaders do, and trusts almost no one. Um, There's also a quote from a DEA agent who says um, that he'd heard tapes of several calls of Mencho talking to cartel underlings. And one of the things he says is these guys are killers themselves, and they were afraid. There's also a great um, story, great, I guess, but an interesting story um, and a a tape of a time when Mencho called um, a, uh, a police commander. And so he called the local uh, police commander, and the, apparently they, the police were getting a little bit too close or doing a little bit too much, and El Mencho went off on him. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's like, you know, don't hang up on me, you son of a bitch. I know where you are. You were just in Chapala, um, you know, and Mencho says, if, if you want friendship, you have a great friend here, but if not, then you can go F yourself. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's talking to a local police commander with absolutely no regard, right? None, none whatsoever. Um, there's a, a good article on um, Borderland Beat this week that talks a little bit about um, 
El Mencho and why he hasn't been caught. And one of the things that comes up is that the Mexican government just isn't very good at this. Uh, and the idea is put aside all the corruption issues. They don't really have a good strategy. And we're going to talk about that in just a second more. But so there's an, an, an analyst who's quoted in here. His name is Guillermo Valdez, um, who it says led the intelligence service during the militarized escalation of the war on drugs before Peña, Peña Nieto took office. He says, there is no general strategy to dismantle criminal organizations, only the search for big bosses. So, um, and it also talks about the fact that, excuse me, the military and the finance, and there's just no coordination. There's no coordinated effort. Um, something else that's kind of interesting. We, we want to talk about El Mencho and, and why he's still around. And, you know, I mean, CJNG is, um, is prolific in the United States. The reports of the, the degree to which heroin and synthetic opioids, including fentanyl, the quant or the percentage of those that come into the United States from Mexico that CJNG has its hands on is enormous. I mean, I've seen reports from 50, 60, 70, 80%, whatever it is, their influence on the drug trade in America and related overdoses and, and ancillary effects is enormous. Their violence in Mexico remains well known. The last time we talked, we, we talked about, you know, some of the brutality and, uh, you know, the, the murder of El Cholo and, and things. Um, so you're always going to see that. The battles that are going on between CJNG and Sinaloa cartel, particularly for certain battleground areas in Chihuahua or Tijuana, very important. So you, you start thinking about, again, why, you know, what, what's going on here? And, and I think we have a couple of other things that, that should be mentioned. Um, when the Mexican government made a serious push for the war on drugs a few years ago, it seems to me and to some others that they focused on two groups predominantly. One was the Zetas, because at that time, and maybe still, they were the most violent, um, the most kind of out there, the most notable, the scariest, whatever you want to say. But if you wanted to go after somebody and show that you were doing something, that was a place to go. And then the other was the AFO organization. And we talked, uh, you know, a week or two ago uh, to Steve Duncan about kind of his investigation. But on the other side of the border, you know, the Mexican government was working hard. And that makes sense, too, because where, you know, you had the, the AFO, Tijuana cartel, whatever you want to call it, in one of the most notable Mexican cities, especially, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So, of course, they went there. And then later on, you had the Sinaloa cartel. And in some respects, um, 
El Mencho was overshadowed by El Chapo, which probably inured to El Mencho's benefit and El Chapo's detriment, right? We've talked a lot about the fact that that El Chapo being out there, being notable, doing interviews with Sean Penn, for Christ's sakes, um, you know, that probably directly led to his arrest. El Mencho doesn't do that, has never done that. And so you have a situation where you've got somebody who, um, you know, wasn't the primary target of the government for many years, didn't, you know, was overshadowed by the focus on, uh, on El Chapo, frankly, got overshadowed by the, uh, the attacks on or the, the capture of Rafael Caracantero in November, you know, so, or I mean, in July, sorry. But, um, you know, so there are lots of reasons why he's been able to survive. What I find fascinating is I spent a lot of time today and yesterday and a couple of days ago researching El Mencho trying to find things about, not about his background. Okay, we all know, you know, we'll all accept at a poor family. And, uh, you know, they raised avocados and we have some things. But if you're really talking, especially since his arrest and release, the last seven, eight years, publicly at least, there's so little information. It's stunning. But, but, but... (laughs) If you go and you look at the Guacamayo hacks, right, all those emails, what did we talk about when we were looking at some of the release documents from those hacks? The amount of information on CJNG was pretty impressive. And they had a, you know, an organizational chart. It looks like one of the, you know, the mafia charts to the Don and the Consigliere and stuff. You have all of that. And they had a, I mean, man, it was pretty damn impressive. So it's weird. And, and I'm not going to have an answer for us tonight. Um, but we've, you've got the situation where normally speaking, normally speaking, the government goes after the ones that kind of are in their face. Los Zetas. Tijuana Cartel, AFO, El Chapo. Well, CJNG has been out there. They've attacked the government like almost nobody else, including Zetas. And yet, there doesn't seem to have been a coordinated effort to get El Mencho. Is that coincidence? Is there something behind it? Is there some other reason why they haven't gone after him? I don't know the answer to that, but we're going to find people who do. And one of the things that we are going we uh, are going to do in 2023 is we're going to have more uh, experts come in to talk about things that that are outside of my realm. And as I've said, I said at the beginning, you know, I don't like just repeating rumors. 
one of the things about El Mencho, El Mayo, a lot of the cartel leaders, a lot of the cartels, is the same stories get told over and over and over and over. Whether they're true or not, they just get accepted as true. Makes me very, very nervous. So we're going to have some people come in talk about El Mencho. But I th- circling back, why did we talk about him again? Right now, in the United States, the flow of drugs from Mexico is truly epidemic proportions. Fentanyl in particular. Synthetic opioids are the the wave of the future. Right now, there's two cartels that control most of the drugs going into the United States. CJNG and Sinaloa. Maybe the new familia Michoacana because of their work with, with fentanyl. But those are the big ones. And... From an American perspective, if we're sitting here saying, how do we combat the war, you know, the the flow of drugs? I think it's really important that you understand the best we can, the people behind this, you know, the CJNG, the, the, the Sinaloa cartel, they're not nameless, faceless entities. There are people who run them. It appears that those two cartels are run very differently and have very different power structures. One far more vertical and one far more horizontal. And I think there's some fascinating um, room for analysis of those issues, uh, which may not really... Maybe you have to get really geeky to... um, (laughs) into cartels and things to care whether it's a horizontal or a vertical structure. But uh, I think it's important for us in America to understand who these people are, what their motivations are, how they've survived, recognizing that, you know, we've got a DEA that works down there that was instrumental in getting El Chapo, was instrumental in getting Carlo Quintero, maybe instrumental in, in getting, uh, El Mayo or El Mencho one of these days. But, um, again, I, I think I, I just find El Mencho in particular to be an interesting character. I think El Mayo is as well, but for different reasons. But the CJNG has been so graphic in their violence but also so smart in their business operations, so capable of expanding their operations and still maintaining that general structure. And of course, staying out of jail. So um, that's a short version of who the hell is El Mencho and why hasn't he been captured? We're going to do a bunch more on the major cartels over the next few weeks. And as I say, we're going to start looking at the cartels in a more uniform and structured way, circling back to some of our old topics um, occasionally. But that's what you have to look forward to. Thanks for joining me tonight. I know this was a little bit of a shorter episode, but given the holidays, 
uh, kind of seems appropriate. But I thank you again. Happy New Year, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week.